The following podcast is sponsor content from Amazon. A Fine Mist of Blood by Michael Connolly. Part One. Under the LAPD's investigative policy and procedure, DNA hits came in the mail. A yellow envelope from the regional crime lab's genetic unit. Fingerprint matches were less formal. Notification would usually come by email. Case-to-case data hits were the rare bird and handled in yet a different manner. Direct contact between the synthesizer and the submitting investigator. Harry Bosch was sitting in the waiting room of the department's behavioral sciences unit when he got the call. The buzzing of his phone brought an immediate response from the woman behind the gateway desk. There's no cell phones in here, she said. I'll take it outside, Bosch said, standing up. I won't come out to find you. If you miss your appointment, you'll have to reschedule and your situation won't be resolved. I'll risk it. I'll just be out in the hallway. He stopped for a moment and looked down at the woman behind the desk. Besides, he said, I don't have a situation. Everybody has a situation, she shot back, whether they know it or not. Bosch pushed through the door as he connected to the call just before it went to message. The hallway was quiet and deserted. The ID on his cell screen had simply said LAPD data. Bosch hadn't been expecting a call, but he knew any call from the death squad was worth jumping on. The caller was a tech named Malik Pran. Bosch had never dealt with him and had to ask for the name twice. Pran was in data evaluation and theory, death for short, and part of a new effort by the department unit to help clear cases through what was called data synthesizing. For the past three years, the death squad had been digitizing old murder books, the hard copy investigative records of unsolved cases, creating a massive database of easily accessible and comparable information on unsolved crimes, suspects, nicknames, gang affiliations, witnesses, weapon types, tattoos, locations, word constructions, Anything that an investigator thought important enough to note in a case's investigative record was now digitized and comparable in seconds to other cases. The program had paid big dividends, pulling up links between cases that exposed two serial rapists and a serial killer so far, as well as providing investigators on dozens of other cases with new angles to pursue. The project had actually been initiated as a means of simply creating space. The city's records archives were bursting at the seams with acres of files and file boxes. The department had gone digital years ago. It was the volume of previous files that was the issue. Wholesale shredding and mulching of files was a bad PR move. It practically announced to the world that the department was giving up on every case in which a file was eliminated. Shifting it all to digital was the better move and would make room in the cramped department for more offices and other uses of archive space. Pran told Bosch that he had a case-to-case hit that the detective might want to take a look at. A witness listed in a recently digitized cold case from 2002 came up as a witness in a recent case Bosch and his partner, Jerry Edgar, were currently working. Which of our cases are we talking about? Bosch asked. Raymond Randolph. Pran said. I'll put everything in the report. Randolph was one of the unsolved cases Bosch and Edgar were carrying. The case was nine weeks old but still on their desks. There hadn't been a viable lead in four weeks, so the call from Pran was welcome news. Who's the witness? He asked. Diane Gables. Pran said. 
41 years old, Studio City. Bosch recognized the name, but didn't immediately place the importance of Gables to the investigation. He had not dealt with her. As was their routine, Bosch and Edgar divided the list of secondary witnesses, and Gables was on Edgar's list to pursue and to make a determination in regard to importance. He had obviously determined that she was peripheral to the case, or Bosch would have been involved in any follow-up with her. Bosch felt a little bit of a letdown here. If Gables was a peripheral witness, then the coincidence of her showing up in the records of another case told him it was likely just that, a coincidence. What was the first case in which she was a witness? Bosch asked. I'll be sending all this in the report, but she was listed as a primary witness in a case from 02. Pran said. Roy Allen McIntyre, shot to death in Westwood, May 5th, 02. Guy was some kind of gold dealer, ripped people off, and no prosecution resulted. Bosch nodded. He remembered the McIntyre case. He had nothing to do with it, but it would have been hard to miss. McIntyre had been a true villain, a guy who had robbed people of their savings and confidence. To many, he was a guy who needed killing, and someone had done just that. Dispatched him in the garage of the Westwood condo high-rise where he was living under an alias so no one could find him. Though he knew the name McIntyre, the case was too distant for Bosch to remember how Diane Gables played in the case. Okay, Malik, you're going to send me what you've got? He asked. Yes, right away. Pran said. And you're copying my partner? Of course, Detective Edgar. Thank you. Bosch disconnected and headed back toward the waiting room. But, as was often the norm in his life, the case came first. He pulled out the phone again and called Jerry Edgar. Harry, how'd it go? Edgar said by way of a greeting. That was fast. It didn't go. Not yet, at least. Harry, you need to get cleared, officially. I know, I know, I will. I'm here waiting to get in. Meantime, I just got a call from the death squad. They made a connection between Randolph and a case from 02. McIntyre, that gold dealer who took his investors for everything they had. I remember that case. There was like a thousand suspects in that one. Anybody who lost money? What's the link? Got a name, but we both should be getting the package. Diane Gables? I think she was in your pile. She was a principal witness in the McIntyre case. Who is she on Randolph? Edgar had to think for a moment before responding. Definitely not a principal. She was in the vicinity. She ran a red light three blocks from the kill scene. I checked her out and there didn't seem to be anything there. Bosch was silent a long moment. He could defer to his partner, but he never put much stock in coincidence. Okay, well, we're getting a package from this guy, Prawn and Data, he said. We'll take a good look. I better go back in and get my clearance. I'll be here, Edgar said. Bosch disconnected and pushed through the door. The woman behind the desk looked up at him. I just called your name, she said. You missed your appointment. I was standing right there, Bosch said, pointing at the door. You could see me through the glass. I called your name. Bosch shook his head. He took a step toward the desk, ready to get into it with her. But then he thought of the package coming from Pran and the death squad. Without a word, he turned on his heel and walked out of the office.
Bosch had the McIntyre files attached to an email from Pran waiting for him when he got to the detective bureau and opened his screen. Edgar, working at the desk next to Bosch's, had already printed out several documents from the case files and was reviewing them. Bosch first opened the murder book from their own case and looked for his partner's summary reports on Diane Gables. The murder of Raymond Randolph had all the earmarks of revenge. At the time of the killing, the 39-year-old Randolph was awaiting trial for raping a 17-year-old girl who had knocked on his door to sell him candy bars as part of a fundraiser for a high school trip to Washington, D.C. Through the preliminary hearing on the matter, it became clear to the prosecution, to the family of the victim and the media, that Randolph was intending to mount a defense that would acknowledge that he'd had sexual intercourse with the girl, but that it was consensual. He intended to claim that the victim offered him sex in exchange for his buying her whole carton of candy bars. The outrage of the family and the district attorney's office got major play in the media. Two weeks before the scheduled start of his trial, Randolph was found in the single-car garage behind his bungalow on Fountain near Highland. He had been put on his knees and shot twice in the back of the head. It was an execution. The crime scene was clean, but it was a hot day in July. A neighbor who had her windows open because of a broken air conditioner heard the two shots, followed by the high-revving takeoff of a vehicle in the street. Fearing there had been a drive-by gang shooting, she called 911, which brought a near-immediate response from the police at Hollywood Station, just a few blocks away, and also served to peg the time of the murder almost to the minute. Though the initial focus of the investigation was on the family and friends of the rape victim, Bosch and Edgar were thorough and cast a wide net. They sought to identify and interview every possible witness in the neighborhood who could have seen or heard something. In doing so, they came across Diane Gables. Four blocks from the Randolph home was an intersection controlled by a traffic signal and equipped with a camera that photographed vehicles that ran the light on red. The camera took a double photo, one shot of the vehicle's license plate and one shot of the person behind the wheel. This was done so that when the traffic citation was sent to the vehicle's owner, it could be determined if the owner was the driver behind the wheel when the infraction occurred. Diane Gables was photographed in her Lexus, driving through the red light within the same minute as the 911 call reporting the gunshots. The photograph and registration was obtained from the DMV the day after the murder, and Gables was interviewed by Edgar and another detective named Soto, who was filling in for Bosch on a day he had a court appearance. According to Edgar's summary of the interview, Gables had a perfectly good reason for being in the area, and possibly for running the red light. She had just left the nearby police station where she had filled out an accident report, stemming from her car being struck while parked the night before outside a Hollywood restaurant. Filing the report took longer than Gables anticipated, and she was running late for an appointment after leaving the station. This was her explanation for running the red light that got her the traffic violation and brought her to the attention of the investigators. Edgar and Soto found no connection between Gables and Randolph or the victim of the rape. In an addendum to his summary of the Gables interview, Edgar added that he checked with records and confirmed that Gables had filed a report at the police station that morning. Her explanation for her being in the area and the confirmation of the report resulted in Edgar concluding that no follow-up regarding Gables was necessary. 
Bosch thought Edgar had handled Gables properly, but he continued to grind it down inside. He didn't like coincidences. He didn't believe in them. What about the restaurant? He asked. Did you check that out? Edgar looked up from his reading. What restaurant? He asked. The one Gable said she was at the night before when her car got hit. When she showed me a credit card receipt, that confirmed it. Birds over on Franklin. If you're asking me if I went there to independently confirm it, the answer is no. Harry, I didn't, and that's a bullshit question. And she was... It's just that if she was setting something up like a cover story, she could have crunched her own car Come and... Come on, Harry. You're kidding me, right? I don't know. We're still going to talk to her. I know that, Harry. Bosch closed the murder book and started going through the files that Pran had sent on the McIntyre case. It was the oldest story in the book. McIntyre was a swindler. He sold gold, but there was no gold, or not enough of it. It was a Ponzi scheme through and through, and like all of them, it finally collapsed upon itself. The victims lost tens of millions. McIntyre was arrested as the mastermind, but the evidence was tenuous. A good lawyer came to his defense and was able to pose McIntyre in the media as a victim himself, a dupe for organized crime elements that pulled the strings on the scheme after taking control of his legitimate business. The DA got cold feet and started floating a deal that would put McIntyre on probation, provided he cooperated and returned all the money he still had access to. But word leaked about the impending deal, and hundreds of the scam's victims organized to oppose it. Before the whole thing went to court, McIntyre was murdered in the garage under the Hillguard Boulevard tower where he lived. Shot once between the eyes, his body was found on the concrete next to the open door of his car. The crime scene was clean. Not even a shell casing from the 9mm bullet that killed him was recovered. The investigators had no physical evidence and a possible suspect list that numbered in the hundreds. The killing looked like a hit. It could have been McIntyre's unsavory backers in the gold scam, or it could have been anybody on the list of investors who'd gotten ripped off. The only bright spot was that there was a witness. She was Diane Gables, a stockbroker who happened to be driving by McIntyre's condo on her way home from work. She reported seeing a man wearing a ski mask and carrying a gun at his side run from the garage and jump into the passenger seat of a black SUV waiting in front. Panicked by the sight of the gun, she didn't get an exact make or model of the SUV or the license plate number. She pulled to the side of the road rather than follow the vehicle as it sped off. Despite investigating the case through the department's elite homicide special unit, no suspect was ever identified and the case remained open. You ready? Bosch asked. Ready. Edgar said. I'll drive. They stood up. Rattlesnake or Cobra? Edgar asked. Bosch considered things for a moment. Edgar was asking how they would approach Gables. A rattlesnake interview was when you shook your tail and hissed. It was confrontational and useful in getting immediate reactions. Going Cobra was the quiet approach. You'd slowly move in, get close, and then strike. Let's go Cobra. This has been part one of A Fine Mist of Blood by Michael Connolly. The story continues in part two. Be sure to stream the new season of Bosch with Amazon Prime beginning March 11th on Amazon Video.